Hello, and welcome back to Now Screaming, episode 90. I'm Evan Culbertson. And I'm Liz Smart. And we're watching all the horror movies currently available for streaming on the internet. So you don't have to. This week we're talking about the 2011 film, The Thing. Not the 1982 John Carpenter, The Thing. No. Nor 1951's The Thing from Another World. Which is what The Thing is based off of. Correct. Which is in turn based on the 1938 novella, Who Goes There? (laughs) It's great. I love this history lesson. This is the prequel. Slash remake. It serves both purposes. Yes, it does. Uh, It comes to us from HBO Max, if you'd like to watch this. Would you recommend watching it? I really wouldn't. Hmm. And it's not that this is some awful abomination. It's just that it is so indebted to John Carpenter's The Thing that it is afraid to do anything new, except for the things that it does very badly. Yeah. <laughs> every innovation, every way in which it deviates from The Thing and the less the plot, but more the hallmarks of The Thing formula, mm-hmm. the tension, the the structure, all of that... It, locations and things yeah, like that. Yeah, it gets quite bad. So, I don't hate this movie. Yeah. But I don't think it's worth your time. It's... My my number one feeling when watching it is... What's really funny is that I think that if it weren't related to the thing, I would have enjoyed it more and I would have had more fun with it. But yeah. Like, to, you know, to go back all the way back to the, the early, early days of this podcast, we did a movie called Harbinger Down. Oh, yeah. That is also kind of like a thing remake. Um thing in the like giant thing in the ice they op- they open it up it's something prehistoric it takes over all of them it's tardigrades tardigrades yeah exactly so like it, it th- this had this was very similar to that and that movie i think we had a good time with because it was like its own thing let's not rewrite history that's not a good we movie we had a good sure, time sure. with it did i say it was good no, 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 no but we had a good time and i think that's what i think that is what you're saying about this is that like Possibly one could have a good time with this movie, except that it is, you know, a prequel slash remake of The Thing, and therefore everything's compared to that movie for me. Yeah. And it makes it so much worse by comparison. I agree. So let's talk a little bit about what this is. So this movie was directed by Matthias von Hedgingen Jr., who is a Dutch director who had never made a feature before and has not since. That's so weird. He had made some short films and he was originally tapped to do the sequel to the Zack Snyder Dawn of the Dead. And then that fell through. And I guess they felt pity on him <laughs> and gave him this. However, in my research, I could not find why they gave him the Army of the Dead job. So I don't know where this guy came from or what his connections are. But he did get to make this movie. He's like someone's buddy or something. Because there's like famous people in this movie. Like it's not like a student film, you know. It's it, interesting. Yeah, it was written by Eric Heisserer who wrote the Nightmare on Elm Street remake and lights out the adaptation of that short film that went oh, viral. Yes. As well as, pause for dramatic effect, Bird Box and Arrival. <laughs> Those are wildly different. Yes. Bird Box is like not good and Arrival's really good. Yeah. It's very Weird. strange. As you alluded to, this movie has a cast that is primarily Scandinavian, but features... A few actors that I would describe as um, up-and-comers at the time, hot things. For sure at the time, yeah, yeah, yeah. Namely, Joel Edgerton and Mary Elizabeth Winstead, our star, our Kurt Russell, to carry this movie. Mm -hmm. 
which is not fair because I love Mary Elizabeth Winstead, but she doesn't quite have Kurt Russell's charisma. No, it's, it's also a poorly written character. Kurt Russell's character, McCready, oh, McCready, the things I could say about that man, like, he's interesting. He's complicated. Yeah. This is that unfortunate, like, late, um, I guess, early decade, later 2000s, early decade 2010s, um, like, our, a woman is our main character, so she can't have a personality. Yeah. Like, she just has to be a woman. Who's good at her job. Who's, good, who's like, extremely competent, yeah. yeah. And she can't have any flaws or be interesting in any kind of way because women aren't allowed to have nuance at the time. Probably kind of still, but, like... Especially at that time when it was like, oh, a female-led horror movie. Oh, wow. What a, you know, special thing we get. I think that a lot of our discussion of this movie is going to be rooted in, unfortunately, comparing it to John Carpenter's The Thing. That's natural. This, this started life as a Thing remake. The producers oh, interesting. convinced, I don't know who, the big, the big brass at Universal, <laughs> to not do a straight remake, that that would be a bad idea. A thought with which I agree. I also agree. So it does serve the purpose of a remake in that it hits all the same beats, but it is a narrative prequel in that, if you recall the beginning of John Carpenter's The Thing, the way that the thing gets to <laughs> our base and our base, characters yeah. is through a dog that is being chased by a helicopter from the Norwegian base. And as they discover in that film, the thing, I keep wanting to call it something else, the thing has already ravaged the Norwegian base that they go visit mm -hmm. and find out that, oh, everything that's happening to us already happened. So, John Carpenter's The Thing sets itself up perfectly for a prequel. It really does. Although, I, I, it's interesting that you say that this did not start as a prequel, because I will say I expected it to be more prequely. Like, I expected the dog to be more a part of it. Yeah. Because that's like that's what I was waiting for the whole time, right? Is like, the dog, the dog. It's really just Chekhov's dog. It's just, yeah. And they show the dog once in the beginning, but then they don't really show the dog at all until the end. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I'm actually kind of disappointed. It, it felt tacked on. Um, both times that it was like, we have to involve the dog somehow. And I, I think that if this had started life as a prequel, it probably would have felt more like a prequel. Yeah. And I also think that it, it has a problem that I don't think that there's a way for it to overcome, which is that we know how this ends. That's typical for prequels though. Sure. But it removes, it removes literally all the suspense. We can't have the final girl in this movie who no. we'll talk about what happens to her at the end, but we know that they can't survive. Everyone dies. And if they don't die from the thing, they're in fucking Antarctica. Yeah. There is no escape. There's nowhere to go. Right. If you make it out of this alien shapeshifters, like murderous rampage, you're going to starve or freeze yeah. to death. So what it, I think what it tried to do slightly, which is the, what you have to do here, is provide the audience with information it doesn't get from the thing. Yes. Which is what it tries to do in that we see the ship, right? Like, we go to where the thing came from, which they never do in the original thing. There's no there's no lore right. in the thing. This is That's what this movie, I think, was trying slightly to be about, is about lore. The thing's lore, John Carpenter's The Thing's lore, is the hint of this movie. Yes. Is the idea that something happened before, yeah. and even before that, it came from space, and but we don't know anything else. And the scientists learned that information and never got to pass it along because they died violently. Yes. Uh... Which I think, like, 
I will say that the things I really wanted to like certain aspects of this movie because I I love big monsters. I enjoy them so much. So when Mary Elizabeth Winstead gets kind of like called out of her current job she's working on to come to Antarctica and like investigate this. Which she's, is... a, she's a paleontologist, we should say. She's a paleontologist mm-hmm. who, once the Norwegian camp uncovers this, they recruit her yes, to they, come they join their in, dink. Which is the inciting, kind of the inciting incident here is that these three scientists are driving along in their little, you know, Zamboni machine. Snowcat. Snowcat. And they fall into this abyss that like, to me, thrilling. You show me a big hole in the earth and I just get super excited. Yeah. And then it's like big hole. And then it's like, they, they get down there and it's like this giant, giant ship. And I personally get jazzed. And then it's like, oh, we found this thing tried to leave the ship, but then it got frozen in the ice. And there's an overhead shot of the the monster in the ice, the thing in the ice. And it's huge. Yeah. And it looks like it has like tentacles. It's, it's very Lovecraftian. Freaky. I mean the original is also it. very Lovecraftian, but here we get to see its its origin when it was frozen. Yes. And and this kind of mystery of like, why would it leave? They kind of present this like this is your ship. Maybe it's crashed, sure, but like it's your ship. Why would you why would you leave it? Why would you travel out into this terrifying, icy, mysterious world and then just get frozen in the ice. And then they never answer that question. Yeah. And it's so sad because that's what this movie could have been is like, let's get into the lore, let's get into the science, that the thing is not about lore or science. The thing is just about, it's ironically just about people. And tension. And and tension and betrayal and things that make us human, right? Fascinating, but not really about monsters or aliens. And this could have been about monsters and aliens. And instead it set up all these kind of interesting lorry pieces and then was like, but actually it's just a thing remake and we're all just going to kill each other like we did in the, in the original movie. Correct. Yeah, I think that that's its, its primary flaw. I do think to this movie's credit, it tries to make us like, or at least care about and flesh out these characters the way okay. that the original... I think that part of what it's copying from Carpenter's structure is these people feeling real. Yeah. And there being different teams, so there are yeah. different loyalties. I really always like that. There's character information here, and I think that the actors are doing... I actually really have no complaints about the acting. No, me neither. I think it's actually all really I think good. they're doing the best with what they've got. Yeah. Which is unfortunately pretty thin. And I don't think that I have a problem with that. Like I said up top, I think that it's copying everything from the thing. But if the thing you're copying from... John Carpenter, the master, is I should really develop my characters so that when they have conflict, the audience feels that tension. That's a good thing to steal. Yeah. Well, I think I actually think some of the tension in this works well because it's very similar. There's a very similar scene once they've all kind of figured out what's going on. Um, If you'll recall the thing um, by John Carpenter. Really quickly, should we tell listeners who don't know what the fuck we're talking about what happens in these movies sure (laughs) we can start there if you want the thing is a thing and it takes over your body and it um it's very pod person yeah like uh, but wouldn't you say that it's like um invasion of the body snatchers and that it takes over your body and then it makes that per it it becomes exactly a copy of the person that it takes over so the pod people it is literally copying here it's assimilation well that's actually depends on what invasion of the body snatchers you're talking about because in the originals they are in the pod, right? But in recent versions, we did Invasion on this podcast, they are, in fact, body snatching. They're, like, possessing you. Right. Which is the same thing here, right? You're gone. 
You're not being possessed. There's no getting you back. You have been right, devoured. Right, but your body isn't somewhere else. And replaced. No, your body is within the yes the the body or of it's inside the thing. of you. It's complicated. It can, in fact, then rip you open. Right. It can yeah. explode out of you, and then your face can become like a part of its weird tentacly infrastructure. <laughs> Which is what I mean, happened several times. Yeah, so that's what these these movies are about. Literally, the in Antarctica, this alien comes from outer space and does this and wreaks havoc on a Norwegian camp and then an American camp. And it's such a funny monster. And this is true in the in the original. Funny. John yeah, he's. I think I think it's funny. I think the thing is very funny because I think anything that is like I'm an alien from outer space and then it takes over a human's body and it's like now I have to act like a person. <laughs> And I have to trick people is inherently funny to me because I love the concept of this eldritch alien being like, now I have to understand human subtleties and drama. Like that thrills me to no end. I find it hilarious. I kind of, I think that there are other monster stories in which the monster comes to earth and takes over the person and doesn't act like a person. It just kind of lumbers along. Like I think of like men, uh, men in black when like the, 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 a bug alien comes yeah. and is the person. It doesn't give a shit about like acting like a person. It's just like I'm a bug monster and I'm here to eat you. Like I don't give a shit. Or invasion of the body snatchers, like we were talking about. They just like right, right. Well, it depends on which one you're talking about. But yes, uh, and I think that I'm always they... talking about the 1978 sure, Calvin one. For the record, that's that's the only one I'm talking about. Uh, but I think what's so funny about the thing monster is that it 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 wants to assimilate. It wants to survive. Oh, so, it's all about survival for this survival thing. Survival is assimilation because it's a very smart monster who's like, the longer I can act like a person and trick people, the more I can perpetuate myself among this group. And get the fuck out of Antarctica where it's so <laughs> goddamn cold. Yeah, and like, go be with where there's there's not 12 people on a base, where there's hundreds and thousands of people just for munching. The point of the lack of lore here is that we're not supposed to know what it wants. Even sure. this movie doesn't tell us what it wants. And I think that that's good. Right. Well, and like it only explodes out of people, especially in this one, not so much in the original thing, but in this one, it's like it only explodes out of you threateningly if you are threatening it. Like, what is its purpose? If if it just got that one lady, right? That's yeah. It gets first. If it gets the one lady and nobody ever questions it and she just goes back home at the end of this research trip, like what would happen? We don't know its intentions. Right. Which is a good thing. I agree. This movie could... And this is why, again, I don't recommend this movie, but it's not abhorrent. No. It's just... It makes a lot of mistakes. Yeah. Should we talk about the worst thing about this movie? Yes. I know that we're kind of in a foremost conversation about this, and I think that for the last few weeks, we haven't been doing beat-by-beat plot recap, because we've been doing a lot of movies where we have a plot structure, and then the things happen... That you would expect to it's happen. Procedural. It's procedural. Here it's yeah. procedural that people are taken over and there are threats and then they are mitigated and then there's threats and yeah. then there's mitigated. Yeah. Monster, flamethrower, monster, flamethrower, monster, flamethrower, just over and over again. Right. And until so going, the the going through that with characters when we don't even have, like, I don't know the names I of these Scandinavian of them, no. actors. Like, that's not really worthwhile. And I don't, I wouldn't. And there aren't any major twists. There are not any major, like, oh, and it really thwarted the form here when this happened. It, there's one bit like that that well, I think we'll talk about a little later, but like other than that, it's just what we're talking about. They're in a base. It's cold outside, so they have to stay inside. The they yeah, the monster is taking over each of them. That's it. The one thing that this movie has that John Carpenter's does not is computer generated imagery. <laughs> yeah. 
The, the practical so bad. effects in Carpenter's The Thing, incredible. Some of the best ever. Some of the best ever in the yeah. history of film. We just watched it maybe a month ago, and in general, that film holds up incredibly, but specifically, all of the creature effects and the horrible things that happen to these people are so... They're visceral. So visceral. They're shocking, and they also have that... That reality that you can only get from wax and rubber. Yeah, it's so. I think we're in a practical, practical effects renaissance right now. Right don't now, you think? yeah. Like that's the problem with this 2011 time is that it's when CGI was starting to get like passably good, and people were like, "We have to use CGI." More importantly, more importantly than that, because I, I hear what you're saying. The reason that this movie and movies like this are like this. It's not because it, CGI was good enough. It's that it was cheap. Cheaper. Enough. That's what I was going to say. It was finally yeah. cheap enough that... Like, mid-tier movies could do it. Right. Pa- that movie, this movie cost probably passively. $30 million, I think. Yeah. Could could do something that looks good enough to make the audience go, wow, that sure wow, isn't... computers. That's not makeup. Yeah. And, like, in 2011, it, this might have looked... I don't think it would have looked good. Like, I think that we would have watched the 2011... And, and Did you see this in 2011? No, I saw it probably a year or two later. Still, probably at that time, it's like, this looks fine. Um, now it looks like shit. It looks terrible. And it's so sad that there's all these movies where directors were like, oh, we have this technology that we can afford now. And like, let's use it. And it's like, man, should have just channeled 80s horror and done prosthetics because it always looks better. And it actually looks better 40 years later, which is no, I don't think anyone could have ever anticipated. I think, yeah. View history. History has been kind and will continue to be kind to Jurassic Park, the mm. same way that it will to Guillermo del Toro's Hellboy. Yeah. Right. Like by not going CGI, that will be timeless. I mean, yeah. there's CGI in that movie, but like del Toro is a perfect example, actually, in general, of mixing CGI and practical so well. Pan's Labyrinth, I think of specifically. Yeah. Like there's CGI in Pan's Labyrinth, but also the the things that people remember from that movie are primarily makeup and prosthetics. And... It's, it's the way people use CGI now, which is smart, which is like, I mean, thinking about like baby Yoda, right? Like he's right. a puppet, but he has CGI eyes. And there's something about that, the mix, the marriage of those two things that is truly beautiful because I think that if baby Yoda had dead plasticky eyes we wouldn't love him as much as we do right but if he was all cgi we also wouldn't love him as much as we do we would think of him as like jar jar i mean star wars is the is the flashpoint for it this, re- right it really and is. in particular the ways in which effects that looks completely fine that george lucas decided to fuck with by adding Ugh. cgi to them right like yeah those those effects and now those movies look weird and bad and and confused because he updated them exactly whereas no one would have begrudged them the the at the time, groundbreaking visual effects. Yeah, that I think now when I you know when I watch what Jabba's actually supposed to look like in Return of the Jedi, I'm not like, oh, that's such an obviously a puppet. I'm like, that looks great. That's a big worm. Exactly. That's what he looks like. I agree that these effects. It's hard to fault them for not having the practical effects talent that John Carpenter had available to sure. him. Sure. But it makes it look like this. Like in general, this this whole movie looks like a CW show. Yeah, yeah, it does. And it's just unfortunate. It makes it really unfun to watch for the most part because it mm-hmm. looks cheap. And it wasn't cheap. I mean, it was cheap by the standards. Of, like, it's not Avatar, right? right? Um, which had already happened by this point. It's Nuts. It's just cheap. And, like, the lighting is bad. And the lighting is bad to make the CGI work. 
And mm -hmm. it's a shame because I think there's actually some interesting character design stuff going on here. Oh, I, I agree. That's that's the frustrating part. The I'll call it particular the um, disembodied hands. The hands that look like little shrimps. I wrote that down. I love them. And think about how awesome they would look if they were practical. Yeah. It's just sad. It's a bummer. The, yeah. Like great they design look great. work. Great design work is wasted by. It's not wasted. It's a little morose. Is is done a disservice by very dated CGI. Yeah. And it makes this frustrating. And it makes it frustrating, again, because this movie cannot get out of the shadow of a better movie. Right. And I actually, I actually I wrote down that I was like, this looks good. And then I was like, oh, that's because it's a thing from The Thing, which is that there's a point really far into the movie where The Thing has sprouted all its many heads and is running around wreaking havoc. And then they end up setting it on fire. And then it's like burning outside. And I remembered that this is one of the things that they find in The Thing, right? Is yep. they uncover this like mo burned monstrosity and it has two heads that are being pulled apart. And I wrote down like, oh, that looks so great. And then I was like, oh, it's because it's a prop from the thing that they remade for this movie. And of course, that's why it looks good, because it is like a John Carpenter prosthetic base, not even prosthetic, just like it's a prop. It's a it's a sculpture. Right. It's because it's it's Rob Botton and Stan Winston's right. original work that has been replicated in CGI or, or practical CGI. I just realized I didn't get to finish my my. Uh comment on the tension because we started talking about the plot of the movie instead. Oh, right. Uh, listeners hopefully are caught up on what the thing is. Yeah. Please continue. Well, in the original thing, there's a scene in which um, Kurt Russell's character realizes that one of the most interesting things about the thing, a character trait that it has, is that it is not like a person where once something kind of leaves our bodies, it is independent and no longer alive. All of the various pieces of this monster live independently of itself. So if you have its blood, its blood will react to being threatened. For the record, this is not something that Kurt Russell realizes, I don't think. Is it not? This is based on the cover, because this is, it's an evolution I remember of the him test. talking about it. It's evolution of the test that they're working on when it gets abandoned, when, what's his name? Goes sure, crazy. but he's the one who's like, if I touch metal like electricity to this blood it will react correct i believe that is his idea it's a collaboration sure i'm so sorry Sci fake scientists of the thing who well, I, just I think it's important stole credit to know that mccready we're is... not talking about this movie i'm setting this up only to discuss just wait mccready is not a scientist no he's not he is a fucking helicopter pilot yes everyone else around him is a scientist in this movie, our protagonist is a scientist. And it's I true. Think that and that Joel is... Edgerton is the helicopter pilot who is the second character. I think that's an important distinction in... I think you're right that it's kind of the, like, a uh, woman to be empowered must be good at job and nothing else. Yeah. And she can't just be, like, a like a nasty, mean helicopter pilot. And you wouldn't cast Mary Elizabeth Winstead for that. But... Maybe. I think it's an interesting distinction to make up. Continue. Anyway, it is an incredibly done, tense scene in which... Kurt Russell is touching a live wire to little uh, petri dishes of blood. It's not live. He's heating it up with a flamethrower. Oh, my God. Sorry. We're talking about okay. the thing. <laughs> Point is, <laughs> the blood is going to react, and that is the test that they're doing. And it is a very good tense scene um, because it works really well with tension and like, you know, waiting for that moment, but then it doesn't happen until you least expect it because they're having kind of separate fights. It's very good. It's very interesting. You're underselling it. I think it's one of the best scenes in any film in history. I, I just said it was great. <laughs> Unfortunately, the Thing 2011's version of this scene is only moderately good. 
And I think that it's because I wanted a similar thing to happen where I was surprised. See, I think it's to this movie's credit that it doesn't just rip it off. Well, it doesn't rip it off at all because I think it does something interesting in that Meryl's Winstead does figure out, she is the one who discovers this because she's a scientist, um, that it cannot clone uh, inorganic material. So she finds um, fillings like in the hallway covered in blood. Tooth fillings. Tooth fillings. So when um, the woman's body was taken over, presumably, uh, it, it could not, it like popped out her fillings because it couldn't work around them. And they realized early on also that the first guy who was, like, assimilated, they found his um, metal plate from his broken arm, like, somewhere in the monster, meaning it had already... Yeah, they find it inside the monster. Yeah, meaning it had already tried to eat him and, like, spit it out. It was, like, still forming when they started dissecting it. Um, And so what she does is she goes around with a little flashlight to look in everybody's mouths and to see if they have fillings. And it's a great scene of like some people have them and some people don't but unlike the the blood and hot wire test which they don't know that it's going to work but the assumption is that it will with this like somebody could just not have fillings that could just be a thing and this one guy's like they're porcelain they're white you know they don't they're not going to show up with your little flashlight test so i think it actually it was a it was nice to not just do exactly the same thing with the the blood and the wire that they have this other test. That's like not even a very good test, but it's all that they have. Um, it's all the information they have about this monster. I think it's a very creative, it's a very creative solution to a no win problem, which is, like I said, I do think that that's one of the best scenes in any film. It's one of the best uses of tension since fucking Hitchcock. Mm -hmm. It's incredible. Whatever you do in 2011, you're never going to live up to that. No. You can never expect yourself... So don't do exactly the same so thing. Don't, yeah. don't try to do the same thing. Do something that has completely different stakes. Yeah. There is did. no thing that's going to jump, right? Because the there's no chemical reaction going on here, mm-hmm. right? If you're the thing, you can lie about your feelings, right? right. They're not going to trust you, but it's going in such a different direction that I think it's a really smart solution to the problem. I do think the scene... You may be overselling it. I do think it's a little thin. I just, I thought I was underselling it. It, go, it goes on for too long. Yeah. Like it's, it's actually, I, I was, I was excited when it started. Cause I was like, oh, a different thing than the blood scene, but it's doing the same thing, which is that like what it's one of the eternal questions of all shape shifting body snatching movies, which is how do you tell? Yeah. What's the humanity? Do you have like, what's the code word you have with your friends? What's the thing that this guy would know that nobody else would know? Like, I love that in all horror movies that deal with this. Shapeshifting is so interesting because of this. Yes. And this was an interesting take on it. And I found myself sad because it goes on for too long. And by the time we get to the face exploding, I was like, I'd already lost interest. And I think that's unfortunate because it was done so well in the original. I agree that it gets boring. And then the punchline what did you call it the jump scare the jump scare yeah the big jump the cgi is really bad it's one of the oh, worst so the face splitting thing that happens is one of the worst effects in the film and again it just bums me out i think a lot of watching this movie bummed me out more than anything because like you said if it wasn't just in john carpenter's shadow i could have appreciated for what it was in john carpenter's shadow it's just not as good and it's doing the thing's not as well. Yeah. I think that's most of what we're going to talk about in the plot. Do you want to talk about the ending? Yes. So they go to find the ship. It's not like the thing at all. It's like Prometheus, which came out the next year. 
it is a very weird sci-fi set piece, a badly lit sci-fi set piece that really doesn't work for me at all. No, it's very unfortunate. Eventually, when they escape from there, Mary Elizabeth Winstead and Joel Edgerton escape. Mm -hmm. Mary Elizabeth Winstead notices that Joel Edgerton doesn't have the earring that... He's had the whole movie. He's had the whole movie. And then he goes for the wrong ear when he's like, oh, I don't. So he didn't even know. So she decides that he is a thing and flamethrowers him. Which he probably is. Probably. I know. Did they talk about the earring before? Because I did notice it the whole time and I was glad that it kind of came back. I don't remember if they mentioned it. I don't think they do. I just remember being like, oh, interesting that Joel Edgerton has that little earring. That's such an interesting character detail. And then it does come back, which I liked. And then she crawls in the snowcat and I guess is just Jack at the end of The Shining. She's just going to freeze, freeze there. Yeah. Right? We don't see her again. No. Um, the, the, the epilogue to the movie, the credits start, and then cutting in between the credits is, uh, not worth explaining, a guy in a helicopter who had left, is coming back. Yeah. And... And then we see the dog. That leads into the dog chase yeah. in the helicopter that leads into Which the beginning again, silly. of the thing. I wish the dog was more a part of it. That's the whole thing, is the dog. Um, we don't even see when the dog gets, like, God. taken over. I, that's what I wanted to see. So sad. Though dogs are such like a central tension of Carpenter's original, but I do think that whatever they did would have just been copying that as well. Yeah. Because like, is the dog or not is like a huge. Uh, sure. Like the first third of the thing is kind of about the dogs. Yeah. Anyway, I don't really like the way that it cuts between the credits and this epilogue. Just put it at the end of your movie. I guess mid credit thing scenes weren't like the Vogue yet. Yeah. It's just very weird because we again we all know it's coming, so I don't know. It's poor filmmaking in general. This is not a badly directed movie. It's fine. I don't think its flaws are with the direction. And again, I think that the actors are all getting the right notes from the director. At least like they're all they're all behaving the way that they should be behaving. Mm-hmm. So I don't think this is a badly directed movie. That those editing choices at the very end don't make sense at all to me. I agree. I think it's very strange. It's also like nothing like the rest of the movie. It's really weird. I would like to talk about one of my least favorite things about this movie, which is that the thing has a move. He's got like a Mortal Kombat Ugh. finisher. Yeah. He loves to like pierce through the chest. He loves to like turn a tentacle into like a blade. Or I guess it could just be f- like just sheer force, but he loves to pierce a chest and go right through. Mm-hmm. He does it probably five or six times in this movie. It's a very common thing. I feel like I can picture it in so many other movies where it's something comes in like a torpedo and then it opens so that when it is through the chest it can yank you back it doesn't just go back through the chest it turns into like a like a claw or like a flower shape so that it can pull you backwards it's just boring that this shape-shifting eldritch being can do anything and it just loves to like (laughs) uh poke chests yeah it's very silly it's very like it's not a bad move but it's all the it's the only move that he's got. Yeah. You said right, I don't remember if you said it on this podcast or if you just told me, but the um the writer of the script also wrote the Nightmare remake, is that right? Yes, Eric Heiserer. Well, it's very funny because um the I don't know if you remember the last scene of the Nightmare remake, but a very similar thing happens where like I don't remember if how Freddy's claws are involved, but they like pierce through in a very similar way that feels like chest bursty. And I'm yeah. just like, that's really funny. It's, it's clearly not this the thing's move, it's this writer's move. Speaking of actually, I just you saying chest burster. This does a lot of chest bursting, uh, like Alien, and also the um, the arm shrimps are face huggers. 
They're yeah. religious facehuggers, yeah. like also from Alien. Well, it's so funny that we are talking about Alien because this is what I'm learning from the trivia is that they specifically wrote Kate Lloyd, Mary Elizabeth Winslet's character, to not be like McCready. She was supposed to be based more like on Ripley. I mean, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. It's a little weird to be like, who's another woman? I know. Ripley. But like... I mean, this movie is... has this movie has as much alien DNA as it does. The Correct. Thing. They were just trying. I think that they were they were trying to not be. They were continuing that like we don't just want to be a straight remake of the thing. Let's not just have a McCready ripoff. Let's do something different. But then being like, let's do it on one of the only other sci-fi horror women, and it's Ripley. Like that's dumb to me. There are two things I like. Would you like me to tell you them now, or would yes. you like to give us some trivia first? Um. Well, the thing about this trivia is that you're gonna lose it. Oh, no. Um, so, <laughs> so you can go first, and then I will give you three facts that are going to just make you so sad. Oh, no. Okay, so one of the things I like is that this uses a a version of the Ennio Morricone score from Carpenter's The Thing, but only at the very beginning and very end, and I think that that's a nice bookend to this. Mm-hmm. Again, you could say, you could go the other way on this and say that, like, oh, you're just reminding us of a better movie, but I like it, because I think that that's a really good score. Yeah. The other really minor thing that I liked, um, and I'm bringing it up now because it's one of the last images that we are left with, is when it's intercut with the credits and we're seeing the aftermath of the next morning. And we just have this shot of, uh, I don't remember the character's name, but he's cut his own throat and he has since frozen. And I thought it was like a really good... I don't know, a haunting shot of like... I agree, it's extremely He cut his own throat and then he froze anyway, and it's just really fucked up. And again, one of the last images that this leaves us with, and I thought it was really effective, and I thought it could have done more of that and less CGI tentacles. I completely agree. All right, what are you going to say that's going to upset me? So, I want to read these verbatim because I think that... They're they're all written so sarcastically that I think that just they're very funny. Oh, no. Um... (laughs) But one of them is that this was originally going to have more lore. That the original script, they actually did want to um, do exactly what we said. This was going to be the Prometheus of the yes, thing? yes. Which is, I you, didn't you say that when we were watching when they go in, when they actually go into the yeah. um, would have shed more light on the thing's backstory. The prologue would have shown how the alien pilot purposely crashed the ship on Earth and then committed suicide. Later, an alien that was in the process of becoming a thing would exit the ship in order to kill itself by freezing. Uh, she was going to find the dead aliens and like see the last alien pilot hanging with its throat slit, which is fascinating. would have been a very interesting parallel to that. Yeah, that's interesting. Very interesting. Um just something about how this like was going to lead to a massacre among the aliens. And there's another trivia fact in here that brings up the fact that it's interesting that we don't actually know that this, the tentacly beast is what the thing originally looked like, that that could have been part of assimilation of other planets. So like, I really think that's implied. Yeah. It's very interesting stuff going on here. Um, I'm reading this one verbatim. The creature effects were filmed primarily with cable-operated animatronic robots on the director's insistence since it would improve the performances of the cast if they saw what they had to react to. CGI images were planned to be added as elements to the animatronics, such as tentacles, if it couldn't be done convincingly. However, after initial test screenings, the studio ordered the replacement of most animatronic scenes by full CG models. Creature effects supervisor Alec Gills would later say seeing the finished movie gave the special effects team a, in quotes, postpartum depression. Although most of the designs had survived, their animatronics were so worked over that they felt they could have just done the designs and stayed home. He directed the crowdfunded movie Harbinger Down. What? Oh, shit. 
Sorry, <laughs> I didn't read that part when I was doing this. Uh, he directed the crowdfunded movie Harbinger Down, which we did on this podcast, with only practical effects in response to this. Sorry, what? <laughs> so that's fascinating. Okay, so one, it's infuriating I told that they you did practical angry. effects yeah. and then they were like, no. Yeah. It's so sad. It's 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 such a sad thing about 2011 where test audiences were like, no, I don't like that. Or maybe the test audiences were like, eh, and the studio was like, you got to make this CGI, man. It's such a bummer. So I that think makes me like Harbinger Down more. I know. It's hilarious that Harbinger Down is like a response to this movie because I do think it works better. Um, the final... I can't believe you found that out live on this podcast. I know. I'm amazed. The final trivia fact is actually connected to this which is that the director had such a negative experience with the film due to constant studio interference that he claimed to have lost his passion for filmmaking and retired for nearly a decade so that is why he never did anything else we don't still don't know why he uh got, got, this, got job. this movie but he did it and then he was like fuck making movies forever uh he does make films in norway now but he has vowed to never work with an american studio again so I think the message that I'm getting from all of this trivia is fuck the studio. <laughs> Universal Pictures. Fuck you, Universal. Uh, it's such a bummer. It's so sad. I don't think this movie would have been, like, obviously not as good as the, as the thing and still probably not fantastic with without studio interference, but knowing that we could have had at least an interesting animatronic puppet situation <laughs> and we yeah. don't get that anymore, it's, that's, it breaks my heart. It truly does. That's really sad about the director. So Matthias van Heiningen, um, I saw this on, I think, Letterboxd when I was looking. He does have a movie coming out next year, it looks like. Oh, his return. It is Dutch, but it seems like he did find his smile. And he did... <laughs> I'm glad. It's really sad. Again. It's fucked up. That this movie, like, yeah. That's... Um... It made a lot of people really upset. How about now? Do you want to recommend this movie now? Because right now, I, now no, I resent this no, movie a now lot. now I'm angry. Now, I, now I'm very, very mad, actually. Justice for Harbinger Down, a movie that I thought was kind of bad. Seriously. Now, I mean, that's that's the thing, I think, is that that movie is is like this, but better, because it's just a different, it's a different set of, like a different um, place. Yeah. Completely separate characters, like not tied to anything. Actually has some twists and turns, if I recall, in terms of like, not just is this the thing? Is this not the thing? Yeah. It's like, don't you remember? Because it's like there's this, there's scientist drama where some people want to bring the thing back to the world and some people don't want to. Like, there's actually internal drama that's not just shape-shifting drama, which I think uh, adds to it. You so did go, give Harbinger Down three stars on Letterboxd. I liked it. I remember liking it. Go listen to our episode on Harbinger Down. I don't know if it's still streaming anywhere, but, like, go listen to our episode. Uh, Harbinger Down is currently available on Amazon Prime and free on YouTube. It's free on YouTube? Yes. Just go watch Harbinger Down. We'll put the YouTube link in a, in a tweet. <laughs> Perfect. Last thing I want to say on this is that I love Mary Elizabeth Winstead. She is primarily in bad movies. Me too. Why is she in so many bad movies? I don't know. She's in some good ones, but I am a big, big fan of hers. Have been forever. Wish that she got better roles. She was in Gemini Man last year. I am the only person who thinks that's a good movie. I am the only <laughs> one who loved that movie. I don't love it. I liked it. One it's of a, the greatest one of the wildest yeah, of my life. It was. It's a specifically great theater experience because of the high frame rate and the yeah, 4K. Yeah. Incredible. Hope she and Ewan McGregor are happy with the homes they've wrecked. Are they together? They ran away together. Ewan McGregor <laughs> left his wife for her. 
Oh, I didn't. I don't think I knew that. Or I don't know if they're still together. I assume they are, but. Well, I hope so. If you're gonna wreck some homes, you better fucking. I remember we had the conversation earlier this year about who got who the job on Birds of Prey. Oh, oh yes, that's a good movie that she was in. You don't like Birds of Prey? I do like Birds of Prey. Okay, I think that you're you're being hard on her uh, in terms of her movie choices. I like a lot of the movies that she's in, specifically the movie Sky High from 2007, which is the first time I ever saw her. 2007? That might even be earlier, actually. I don't know. She's in some good movies. I like some movies of hers. She's in a lot of good movies. I think you're being hard on her. Okay. Not being hard on her. She's great. What's specifically bad that she's been in that you don't like? All About Nina. The Spectacular Now. I think All About Nina was a good choice, though. Black Christmas. She was in Black Christmas, the remake? 2006, yeah. Oh, never mind. Yeah, terrible. She gets no defense. (laughs) Sky High was 2005, and I love that movie, and I love her in it. Uh, she's great. Anyway, do you want to talk about what we're doing next? Yeah. So I hope everyone has and will have a happy holidays. Mm-hmm. Is a time of year. It's a weird year, and Stay a lot of homes. people aren't. Don't travel. Traveling, and I hope that you aren't. Um, <laughs> Unless your parents live next door to you, and you've been over there already. <laughs> but we are podcasting through it, so we'll have another episode in a couple weeks, right after Christmas, between Christmas and New Year's. Mm-hmm. And that movie will be a recommendation from Evan's mom. From my mom. (laughs) She texted us the other day and said, Watch this movie. And it's called Rare Exports A Christmas Tale. It is a 2010 Finnish Christmas horror movie. I know nothing about it other than I don't know if my mother liked it. I don't know. (laughs) She she actually just said, Have you seen it? And we said, No. And she was like, It's a Finnish horror Christmas movie. And we were like, Cool. And so So we're doing it based on that recommendation alone. Thanks, mom. Yeah. Cool. I if we love it, it'll be oh, like wow. Sorry, mom it's on Prime. Forever. I should say it's on Amazon. Prime. If we don't love it, we're never listening to a mom recommendation ever again. Yeah, that's what you stake <laughs> when you recommend something to us. Is if we really hate it. I don't think we've hated a recommendation though so far though. No, no, I've actually specifically really enjoyed our recommendations. Please feel free to continue recommending things to us. I we can love never it. promise that we'll do it on the podcast. No, and I hate rolling. Unless them. you're related Damn to us, let. in which case we probably will. Again, we wanted to do a holiday horror movie for our next one, but we didn't really have anything in mind. No, I don't know what's Nor did we have a really good way of filtering for that. Yeah. So thanks, Mom, for just solving the problem for us. we haven't done one since our first year ever doing this podcast when we did a Christmas horror story. We back! Christmas holiday horror. I love it. All right. So our next movie will be Rare Exports, A Christmas Tale. And until then, you can check us out on our website at NowScreaming.com. And on Twitter and Facebook at NowScreaming. Be sure to leave us a review of five stars and tell all your friends to do the same. It'll make our holiday brighter. Feel free to tweet us, as always. Yeah. To tell us what you're watching, how you're celebrating your holiday with horror, mm-hmm. and give us recommendations. We love them. Thanks, as always, to Wes Craven. And to Scott Frank, the screenwriter behind Soderbergh's Out of Sight and James Mangold's Logan, as well as the writer-director of Queen's Gambit, for his uncredited dialogue rewrites <laughs> on the 2011 film The Thing. Thank you, Scott Frank. How is he involved? I don't know what what caused your paths to cross with this, but I liked the Queen's Gambit Queen's quite a Gambit bit. Queen's Gambit is not horror, but it's good. So that's my, that's my uh, non-horror recommendation of the season. Go watch Queen's Gambit. It really does live up. Thanks, Scott Frank. Thanks, Scott Frank. Until next time, everyone. Happy holidays. Happy holidays and stay spooky. Stay spooky.